0: Couple of weeks we've been looking at stories of redemption. Um, We've been looking at Peter and Paul, but this week we're going to look at a character that you may not have thought much about before, but actually is, I think, one of my favorite stories certainly of redemption, maybe in the whole New Testament, and was actually the inspiration for this whole series. And it's the story of Mark. Now, Mark's one of these characters who you really wouldn't pay much attention to um, because he doesn't really appear very prominently in the book of Acts. Um, he's actually he's more of a peripheral character. Uh, he just kind of pops up somewhere behind the scenes. He just sort of see mentions of his name at various times. But his story is really quite remarkable, as I, I hope you're going to see in a moment. Um, and it's a really amazing story of redemption. It's the story of a young guy who really blew it as a kid. but as we see later on in his life, as he grows up, really came good uh, and and did some pretty extraordinary things, again, as we're going to see at the end of this podcast. So anyway, here's the story, and and I hope you enjoy it. So we begin our story probably about the year 47. Now, it's impossible to guess these things. We were sort of speculating, but we'd say about 47 uh, CE, and the story actually begins in Antioch. Um, with Mark's cousin, a guy by the name of Barnabas. So I'm going to read a lot of scripture in this one, and then we'll just sort of unpack the story as we, as we go along. So the story begins in Acts eleven nineteen. 19. It says, Now those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So just some quick context to when we meet our character. Um, what's happening here is that the gospel had only been going amongst the Jews. It had begun in Jerusalem. And Jesus had actually said, you're going to preach to, um, to Jerusalem and then to Samaria and then out to the ends of the earth. And they just weren't doing that. They didn't, they'd never left Jerusalem. And so this persecution comes along and it forces them out of Jerusalem. Uh, and to continue to preach. But they were only preaching to the Jews. They were just preaching to their own people, uh, and for the for the various reasons they were doing that. But eventually the word just kind of got out. Uh, people were being saved because God's the one doing the saving, and eventually Greeks are starting to get saved. And we, when we say Greeks, we're talking about people who've grown up and know nothing about Judaism. Uh, you know, when you preach to Jewish people, They at least know scripture. They've been brought up in the synagogues. They know what the Bible says. And so it's much easier to preach to them. But then when you're preaching to to the Greeks, again, they don't know anything. Um, They're obviously Greek speakers. They don't have any of the sort of Judaistic background. Uh, But the message is getting to them. The Spirit is taking the message to them, and they're being saved. And so the people in Antioch, um, you know, they're obviously doing the work, but the church back in Jerusalem, the 12 back in Jerusalem who are, they're they're, the leaders, obviously, they're the ones who are are really sort of directing and leading where this message is going to go. Um, They get wind of this and they say, okay, we need to send someone with some authority to Uh, see what's going on to make sure that this is all above board you know we weren't expecting the Greeks were going to get saved yet here it is so we better figure out what's going on and so they send Barnabas now as we find out later on in the story Barnabas is a cousin of Mark now I'm going to guess that he's probably an older cousin Um, he certainly seems to be um, more mature somebody who's got more authority over Mark than the other way around uh, and so they send him up to find out what's going on. Now, who's Barnabas? Well, we don't really know because this is the first time that we meet the guy. But the fact that they send him would indicate that he's certainly a prominent leader within the church. not, not one of the twelve, clearly, but uh, one of the uh, an important figure of this early Christ movement. Uh, and so they send him along as their representative to to see what's going on. Well, anyway, the story continues on. When, they, well, when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Um, now, we've talked about the name Christians before, how where that comes from, that's a sort of a, politi- a political designation. Um, so the Christos, meaning um, Christ, and so they were associated with the person of Christ, but the I- Iannos is a, is a political faction. So they were um, supporters of a political figure, in this case, Christ. Uh, and so they've you know, we've, we've seen that already, but they went and got uh, Saul to... Help deal with the situation. Why? Why did they go and get Saul? Why was it Barnabas that thought that Saul was the ideal person uh, for this particular situation? Now we talked about Paul obviously a couple of weeks ago, but what was unique about Paul was that well, Saul at this stage was that Saul was born and raised in a Greek context. Now, if you think about the twelve disciples and you think about the leaders like Barnabas who were from Jerusalem they these guys didn't know the greek world they'd grown up really insulated from really from all of that now of course they knew of it they they had exposure to it in a small degree where you know growing up in galilee and judea you're still going to get some exposure to Uh, to this Greek world, you're going to certainly have some awareness of it, but not nearly as much as what you're going to get in a place like Tarsus, where Paul grew up. Uh, You know, it's a bit like when, you know, as a Christian, you grow up in a very Christian-dominated time and place. And, you know, even people that aren't necessarily full on for Christ, still have a basic understanding of Christianity and maybe go to church on Christmas and Easter. That type of environment, to be taken out of that and to be thrown into a culture that's almost never heard of Christ, it's a completely different place to grow up. And you just have really no understanding of that. So that was true of these leaders. You know, they've got... Um, they're seeing these people becoming Christians who are Greek, not just Greek speakers, but just Greeks through and through, who have got no idea about even the very basics of Scripture and and really just have no idea where to begin uh, in in dealing with these people. Uh, But on the other hand, Saul... Obviously, does Saul's raised in Tarsus, and when we talked about him, you know, we saw that he's raised in a Greek city that was famous for its Greek education. I mean, even if you've never been to school in Tarsus, you're surrounded by that culture. You you just it's just in the air, and so Saul is very familiar with that Greek world, but on the other hand, knows the the Jewish world probably better than the twelve in some cases. I mean, Paul or Saul is a trained Pharisee. He is the most educated man of his generation when it comes to things of Judaism. And so you've got, you you can't imagine a better combination of a person who is so thoroughly immersed in both of these worlds. And for, for Saul, it's not just his ability to be able to go and interact with these greek christians but his ability to bridge the two worlds he understands them both so well because since his conversion in damascus where did he go well he went to arabia for a couple of years and then he's ended up back in tarsus i mean we're talking about maybe 14 years from the time that uh, saul was converted on the road to damascus to now when he reappears in acts for the first time he's been living again out in greek cities he's been back in tarsus at the very least preaching and working in this Greek context, um, he knows this world. He's been preaching into this world now for a very long time. And, well, he's obviously had a reputation since his conversion on the road to Damascus. The word of that would have got out incredibly, particularly back in Jerusalem where he was doing the primary persecution. I mean, he was killing Christians like Stephen in Jerusalem, so everybody knew who this guy was. Certainly Barnabas would not would have known about him and maybe if even – seen him or met him at some stage um and so to hear that he was converted Barnabas knew that everybody would have known that and knowing he's back in Tarsus to go and get him well again he's just the ideal person uh to navigate this new situation that they didn't even know they would ever get themselves into let alone how to how to navigate it when they got there Well, our story continues. So during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now quickly about Antioch. When the Christians had scattered from Jerusalem, a lot of them just went north. And if you find a map of um, this region in the first century, you'll find a- you'll find Antioch um, much further north of Jerusalem. So it seems that the church actually really set up base there instead of Jerusalem. They'd ha- they'd be having trouble in Jerusalem since the beginning, uh, and so they needed a new base of operations. And particularly as the story continues, they move in they're moving further into the Greek world on their missionary endeavours it's easier to have a starting point that's closer to the Greek world. So Antioch is kind of the northernmost point of what was the Jewish world at the time. And there was, as we can tell, a lot of Greek people there, so they're really kind of already the bridge between the Greek and the Jewish world. And so the whole church effectively moved its base of operations up there. What we see as Acts continues is that Paul... Leaves uses Antioch as a launching point, at least for the first few years of his ministry. So they come from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire world. This actually happened during the reign of Claudius, Luke tells us. The disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. All right, so already we can actually see two churches beginning to be established. So we've got, you know, these brothers in um, uh, the disciples living in Antioch who are saying, you know, they've, there's obviously a community there large enough to be able to raise some pretty significant funds. And so they decide they're going to raise funds to help um, the people down in Judea. Uh, so these, these Christians living down in Jerusalem. And so you've got these two different churches already starting to, to happen to the church in Antioch and the church back in Jerusalem. So they've raised these funds and they decide to send them along with Barnabas and Saul. Now, why these two? Well, if you remember, Barnabas originally came from Jerusalem. That's where he lived. And so he's been here for a while. And we can only imagine that it's the natural for Barnabas to be, to be the one to go back home, uh, even if it's for only a short time that's the most logical um person to send along and whether he was ready to go home he wanted to go home he probably did um maybe he was planning to go back home for good maybe he'd done his work in antioch i mean if you remember he the only reason he came to antioch in the first place was to come and just to see what's going on to go back with a report to the 12 back in jerusalem so at the very least he was due to go back there anyway um he'd done his job he'd he'd taken the initiative to go and find Saul to bring him along and so now Saul is back is in the picture and well, he probably wants to go and see the twelve as well uh, he probably wants he probably knows that <clears throat> there's a um he's got a call on his life uh, and so to go back and see the 12 makes perfect sense. Um, If only just to maybe go back and say, sorry, I mean, who knows? But you can, there's plenty of reasons why these two men were going to go back to Jerusalem anyway. So it's only logical that they would be the ones to come back with the offering uh, back to back there to Jerusalem. So anyway, that's, this is one of those stories where there's a couple of things all happening at the same time. Uh, So this is what's happening in the year 47, in Antioch. But at the very same time, there's, there's trouble going on back in Jerusalem. They're, they're having their own stories and experiences taking place simultaneously. So this is in Acts 12 verse 11. It says, then Peter came to himself. Now, Peter had been arrested. uh, He'd been imprisoned. And so there's a couple of times where he and John had been thrown in prison. Peter was the primary target, uh, which again, if you remember from our story last week, where Peter had come from, his total failure, his abject failure to now being restored as the leader of the church. He was the one that the authorities singled out for persecution if you get cut off the head everything else will will die that's the idea behind dealing with peter in this way so he's been arrested he's been thrown in prison and so this an angel comes along and opens the doors who releases him to, well, take br- brings peter out of the prison by a miracle and so it's, the story says then peter came to himself and said now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent His angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Oh, there's so much going on in this story right now. Now, okay, think about Luke is writing the book of Acts maybe in the early 70s AD quite a quite a long time certainly a long time after these events took place and so you've got to be thinking about Luke writing to an audience who know how this story is going to turn out and they know who the characters are Uh, it's it's one of those think about um the story of Luke in the time that it was written it's one of those historical dramas think about a movie written about a period maybe 30 years ago so in your living memory if you're older than 30, um, a, story, a movie about a time when you remember, the t- you remember the story but at the time you didn't know how it was going to turn out as obviously we don't know how these stories turn out. But then in retrospect, you look back and you go, oh, that was so significant and I can see all these people now who are prominent where that all began because when, when the story is happening, these people are nobodies. They're just – they haven't done anything yet. They haven't become famous yet. Um, but then, you know, now we know who they are. So when you're telling their story, you bring them into the story in a way it's like, oh, that's where you came from. Oh, I, I didn't know your backstory. I know who you are now, but I, I don't know who you were back in the day. This is, and so it's, it's very illuminating for a modern audience to sort of see the backstory of these people that they now know very famously. Well, that's kind of what Luke is doing here because Mark goes on to become an extremely famous person in the early church and certainly around the time of Luke. But for all of Luke's audience, they would have known about Mark, but didn't know anything about where he came from. And so Luke's kind of telling the story in that way. So it's really amazing what he does here. Peter gets released from prison and he gets taken back to the house of Mary, the mother of John also called Mark. Now, who's this Mary? Well, clearly she was an important person in the church because Peter first went to her house. And as we find out from the story, there was a prayer meeting going on at her house. So all of the uh, leaders and Christians in Jerusalem were in prayer for Peter's welfare and they were doing it at the house of Mary. So clearly this is an important woman. She's obviously a, a very, um, well, we don't know how influential she was, but she was certainly somebody who was held in high esteem by the early church in Jerusalem. Now, as we find out um, from this story, Barnabas is the cousin of this guy John, also called Mark, and so clearly she's the auntie of Barnabas. Um, you take all of it together, Barnabas's family and his extended family appears to be a pretty significant family within the church in Jerusalem so all of that there, she, there, there obviously, there's a quite a significance about this family enough certainly that when they call, when she calls the prayer meeting for Peter everybody turns up and Peter knows that that's where people are going to be I mean he didn't know there was a prayer meeting going on he's going back to Mary's place presumably um, just because he knows that's a place he can find shelter and there's a whole prayer meeting going on while he's over there but anyway, so Mary, the mother of John. Now, in every, ti- every time you meet a new person in a story, it's always such and such, the son of. You're always designated by who your father is. So in, in the immediate culture, you're introduced as your father's child. But the way that Luke introduces her here is: this is Mary. Uh, you know, and now that obviously there are plenty of Marys around at the time. Which one are we talking about? Oh, this is obvious. She's the mother of John. You know John. Oh, you may not know him as John. You know him as Mark. Ah, oh, wow. This is his mum. And so to really uh, highlight her prominence, she's not designated by the daughter of who her parents were, but rather who she was the mother of, which is really backwards. Again, when you think about it, she's always you're always designated by your parents. Here you're designated by your child. This kid's clearly famous. And certainly at the time when this story's been told, everyone knows who this guy is. Now they're meeting his mother for the first time, and it's filling in more of the picture. The point here isn't even about Mary. The point's about the son. The fact that you know who this kid was, Well, you, does it make sense to you now why he became who he was? Well, look at his mum. She was an amazing person in the church, so it's only logical that her son would become the person that we all know now in 70 odd AD who this kid has become. So really cool part of the story. I, I just I really just enjoy that that side of it. Okay, so let's finish the year out. Uh, end of Acts Acts 12, 25. So we're still in Jerusalem, but this is a a later point. Now, we don't know how much later, maybe weeks, maybe months. We're not entirely sure um, how long Barnabas and Saul have been in Jerusalem. But anyway, the story finishes off. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now, again, here's this designation of also called Mark. Uh, His name seems to be John Mark. But, again, later on when this story's been told, he's only known as Mark. So they're introducing him as what was probably his primary name, John, John Mark, but they keep pointing out the fact that this is the Mark that we all know from where we are today. You know, looking in hindsight... No one knew who this kid was going to become. He was just John. He was the cousin of Barnabas. He was the daughter of Mary. He was just some kid who we didn't know anything really about. We certainly had no idea of, of where his life was going to end up. Uh, so Barnabas and Saul, they finished their mission, and so they returned from Jerusalem, obviously back to Antioch. Only this time they take with them John, also called Mark. Why, why did they take him with them? Well, he's a young kid, and cousin of Barnabas. So there's the family connection there. Uh, the daughter, the son of this incredible woman by the name of Mary. He seems like the logical candidate for somebody who's going to be an apprentice, and this is what he seems to become at this stage. He he now becomes the student of Saul and Barnabas. So they must have seen some potential in the kid. You don't pick a student who is an idiot, somebody who's got no hope whatsoever. You pick somebody with some potential, somebody from from good stock. And these guys are realizing, hey, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We know that there's a lot of work to be done and we need to get as many students as possible. In the same way that Jesus had 12, well, what are the 12 going to do? They're not going to do all the work. They need to train up the next generation because, again, we don't know how long we're going to be here for doing this. We need to make sure that we've imparted uh, this message and and preaching this message into younger people who can carry on the work. You're not going to put it into older people who might be dead the next year. You want to get young people who are passionate enough to be able to continue the work on. And so clearly Mark at least shows the potential uh, for, for this sort of uh, for this sort of a, sort of apprenticeship, for this sort of training. And so they take him with him. Um, again, we don't know where it's all going to end up, but this is, again, thinking about Luke's audience later on, this is how the story began. So they all know Mark. He's very famous, but this is where it began. He was just some kid in the house of the more prominent person, which was his mother. He was the cousin of the more prominent person, who was Barnabas. Um, and... He started his apprenticeship. He didn't, he didn't just turn up one day and he was the famous Mark that everybody knew. His story starts somewhere. And so for Mark, this is where his story began. Okay, so it's the next year now. It's 48 CE and we're back in Antioch. So we pick up the story in Acts 13.4. It says, two of them sent on the way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogue. John was with them as a helper. So now we've introduced John. He's John, also known as Mark. So you know who I'm talking about now. Okay. So when I say John, you know who he is. Right? Because for these guys, he was John. He wasn't John Mark or John, also known as Mark, at this point. Now, the two of them being Barnabas and Saul, in the, in the previous verses, the, the church had been praying and they'd got a word to say, we need to send uh, Barnabas and Saul out to continue on the preaching. Now, Greeks had, this, this whole story began because some Greeks were getting saved this whole thing was kicked off by the Holy Spirit moving into the Greek world. And he's like, well, if you're not going to go out and preach, I'm just going to get them saved anyway. Like this is going to happen with or without you. So what are you going to do about it? And so the church is like, all right, we better get on board with this. We better get out there and get ahead of this thing because, you know, these people are going to start to... Become Christians, and they're going to start to form their own communities, and they're not going to know what they're doing because there's nobody out there to actually help them along. And so Barnabas and Saul are like, "Look, we just got to get on. We got to get ahead of this." And so they jump out and they begin the work um, in Galatia. Now, if you look at your map of the of the first century of the first century Mediterranean, the the Galatian region is just Tarsus. So it's the area in which we find Tarsus. So really, this is. Going back home for Paul now. If you look uh, geographically, it's the next logical point to the west. So we've come up out of Antioch, up into what is modern Turkey, and we move. We're moving west. The next region that we're going to move into is Galatia, and so the story continues. Up now in the region of Galatia. So we've Acts 13 13. This is from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed from Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Uh oh. Um, the story just took a twist towards the unexpected. So Paul, Barnabas, and Saul have. Uh, Paul. Barnabas and Saul, oh my goodness, Paul, Barnabas and John have gone up into Galatia to begin this missionary work and John's still with them. They've taken him back to Antioch. Uh, but they're like, well, we're going up to Galatia now and you're going to be here in Antioch by yourself. And that's not the whole reason. That's not the reason why we brought you anyway. We, were, we brought you along to train you. And so this is what your training is going to look like. It's going to be on the mission field. We're going out into the Gentile world. You're going to come with us if you want to, and you're going to learn how to do this. And so John's clearly said, Hey, yep, I'm let's go. All right. He's, he's, they haven't tied him up and dragged him kicking and screaming. Uh, He's come along willingly, clearly so that um, to learn, to, you know, become whatever it is that God's called him to become. But only a very short time into the journey, maybe only a matter of months at the most into the journey, the story goes on, John left them. Now, Luke didn't even have to mention John at all. We can understand now why he did for, for later um, sort of some context for, for who this guy becomes. But he didn't need to talk about this. He didn't actually need to mention the fact that John went home. They didn't even need to know that John was there because it's such a short story. You don't even need to mention the fact that the, the, this guy joined them at the beginning but then went home. That could have just been left out. Now, it becomes really significant as this story goes on, but it's put there because, again, it's one of these remarkable twists in the story that, hey, this amazing guy that you know now later on, Mark, well, you know, he made mistakes. Here's another guy who absolutely blew it in the same way that Saul did, in the same way that Peter did. They're they're great men and we know how their stories turned out but they're not perfect and they never were perfect and they made some pretty horrendous mistakes, like John did when he went home. Now, why did he go home? Why did he leave and go back to Jerusalem? Now, notice too, remember, where did the story begin? Where did this uh, adventure leave from? Well, they left from Antioch. So they've gone from Antioch. You would think if he was just simply returning, he would have gone back to Antioch. But Antioch wasn't home for John. He had no, no – he wasn't established there. There was nothing to go back to there. He, so he's not even thinking, well, look, I'll go back to Antioch because he knew, right, Paul and Barnabas would return to Antioch. That's their new base of operations now. So it wasn't like, look, I'll, I'll go back to home base And I'll wait for you there. When you come, look, you know, I'll be more ready or whatever the circumstances are. uh, I'll meet you when you return from this particular trip, which wasn't going to be a long trip. I think they had a sense that it wasn't, it was only about a year at, at the end of it anyway. He wasn't going back to wait for them to continue his training. He was going back home, right? He went back to Jerusalem. This is, I quit. This is Peter going back to fishing. This is, I'm going back to where this began before I made this mistake of coming with you guys in the first place. And the other thing that was back at home was mum. This is a kid, right? I mean, we don't know anything else about him, but presumably he's living with his mum, right? He's a young boy. He's a mummy's boy. He wanted to go back where it was safe, where he was secure, where, all right, look, you know, reckless teenager. I, I thought I'd try that, but no, you know what? did It wasn't really for me. And so I'm uh, I'm going home, going back to mum's place. Now, was he homesick? Perhaps. I mean, he's a young kid. That happens. But I wonder if there's actually more to it because there's an incredible story that takes place in this very short space of time that John is actually with them that I wonder if it just rocked him too much. It's a long passage, but let me read it for you. So it's Acts 13, 6-12. to so it says they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. <clears throat> now, again, this is the story leading up to when John departs. Okay, so this is the last thing he saw while he was with Barnabas and Saul. So the proconsul, now you remember the proconsuls, who are the proconsuls? The proconsul is the emperor's representative in the region. He's the one who is there to uh, promote the, the promote Rome to actually in, in, uh, insist the you know of Roman um, at least Roman authority within the region. Okay, so he is loyal to the emperor because it's the emperor who actually gave him this position in the first place, and his loyalty certainly extends to worshipping not just Roman gods but worshipping the emperor as a god as well. If we remember back to when we talked about the imperial cult, the emperor is god, and so these governors w- at least promote the imperial cult as um, part of the religious package of the Romans. So says this, this proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God, which is just fascinating. Now, now, I mean, I'm sure they must have been suspicious. Surely they were thinking, why does he want to hear this message? This is a counter-imperial message. Why is he bringing us in? Does he really want to hear it, or is he looking for evidence to use against us? I mean, there must have this must have been playing in their minds. But anyway, the story goes on. But Elemus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, now this is the first time Paul's name comes into it and we talked about uh, Paul two weeks ago and the different names that he had with him. So here he is in the Greek world using the name Paul, which makes sense, filled with the Holy Spirit, Looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Okay, number of things happen in here. So in this scenario, you've got this sorcerer who is clearly trying to turn uh, the governor away from the message, trying to distract him from what Paul and Barnabas are preaching. And so in response, Paul says, hey, you're going to be blind. Now, for Saul, or for Paul at this stage, this is a familiar scenario because if you remember when he was on the road to Damascus he was made blind by Jesus. You know this this is something that he knew that Jesus did to get people's attention. Uh, and so whatever uh, is whatever the hope is for this particular source or maybe Paul saw in him the same potential. Maybe it was like you need to go blind so that when you come to get your sight back, you're going to recognize that this Jesus that I'm preaching is actually God. And so maybe there was that behind it. But at the very least, for for Saul or for Paul, he knew that this is part of Jesus's thing, right? He was if if you cross him, he can get angry and bad things can happen as well. Um, at least that was. Saul's experience, and now it's the experience of this sorcerer. But who else is in this group? Well, John, also known as Mark. He's there with Barnabas and Saul looking at this thing going, what the heck is going on? Now, remember, young guy, growing up in Jerusalem, had only known about the Jesus that he had encountered or heard about in Jerusalem. Now, was John old enough to have seen Jesus, maybe, prob- probably, in fact. Um, he would have been a young kid at the time, but he certainly would have been uh, around that circle of people, even as a young, young toddler, uh, would have known about Jesus. And, well, at the very least and very clearly had heard all the stories. He'd heard everything there was to hear about Jesus because he's grown up in a very prominent Christian family, a family that was prominent enough that the head of the church, Peter, when he went for when he was looking for shelter, knew that this is the family to go back to. I mean, so he's this is think about this. He's grown up now in a family where the 12 were familiar with. You you think about, you know, the pastors' kids that have just grown up around all of these prominent pastors that are friends with their parents. Well, this is Mark's experience. He's grown up as close to the center of Christianity as you can possibly get. You know, Peter coming over for dinner was just something that happened on a regular basis. So he knew these guys, right? He knew about Jesus, had heard all the stories and clearly had become a Christian because he was thinking that this is going to be my apprenticeship with, well, two of the great men of God of the age. So he'd heard the stories and what he would have heard about time and time and time again was Jesus healing the blind. And not even hearing about Jesus doing it, he would have been around to see the 12 do it as well because this is what they did. They were going out healing the blind and raising the dead and doing all of these incredible things. This was his experience of Christianity, that Jesus is a God who heals the blind. I mean, that's the whole message is not just a physical blindness, but the metaphorical blindness that we're healed from of having become Christian. So that's the Jesus that he knew. Now, the other thing about growing up in Jerusalem is that even though there is tension and there's, there's constant opposition to Christianity, as we find out, you're at least in the majority, or you're at least, you've got numbers around you. Christianity, there's still more Christians in Jerusalem than anywhere else. Maybe, you know, if, if the day of... Pentecost is anything to go by thousands and thousands of Christians. I mean, you're surrounded by Christians. You're in a safe place. As Christians, you can still go into the synagogue. You can still relate to the people in Jerusalem because you at least all believe in the same God and hold to the same scriptures. And so they're navigating that tension early on in the church. So the point is that Mark's growing up in an environment which is a godly environment, right? He's surrounded by people who all hold the same basic values. So for him, that's safe, right? There's trouble. There can be trouble, as you saw when Peter was arrested. But overall, it's a much safer environment for a young kid to grow up in. Well, anyway, now we find ourselves here in, uh, in Galatia, and you're the only Christians in the region, Right? You've turned up to a town. You're standing in front of the governor of the region. I mean, this is the Pontius Pilate of Judea. This is, this, this is the emperor's personal representative. I mean, he is one degree of separation away from the emperor himself, who is God as far as the Roman world is concerned. Right, You do not get any closer to the absolute heart of danger. I mean, this is the mark of the beast kind of stuff, right? So here we are. In this scenario where you've got a guy standing in front of you who is has the authority of life and death. He's the, the governor has the ability to execute these men if he wants to. That's where he stands. And not just so he's they're totally surrounded, they're totally outnumbered in that respect. Which, if you're a kid, I mean, you know, anyone's gonna have a little bit of bit of fear around them, certainly if you're a young guy like Mark. But more than that, there's a miracle happening. And the miracle's not, you know, hey, let me pray for you and heal you from whatever ails you to prove that Jesus is God. No, no, no. This is Saul getting absolutely enraged and then using the power of God, the same power that Mark had seen used time and time again to do incredibly good things, now being used to, well, hurt somebody, to do something really bad bad to a person to make this person blind this jesus who heals the blind is also the jesus who seems to make people blind to prove his point now take all of that together what are you thinking as a kid i mean let's take a guess at how old mark would have been he would have only been in his late teens i mean just this is a lot to take in this is absolutely i would imagine completely overwhelming clearly it was for this guy because he's like i can't do this anymore I've got to go home. I quit. Sorry, guys. I'm done. And so he goes home. He quits. And presumably, never to be seen again. Well, at the very least, um, we'll see how the story turns out. All right. Well, our story continues. It's the next year. It's about 49 CE. And now we're back in Antioch. So the mission journey has been completed. It's only a short one. Uh, they're back in Antioch. And so it says here, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, he's that guy again, uh, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with, uh, with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. Okay, a couple more things going on here. Um, I asked a moment ago why was it that they mentioned the fact that Mark had left, had left them there in in Galatia. And, well, this is why, because where the story is going towards is the splitting up of Barnabas and Saul. Now, this is the big headline of the story. It's that the first missionary pair, Right, Paul and Barnabas, the two great men who are going to take this message into the Gentile world, within 12 months of forming a partnership, have split up. This is a big deal. I mean, in the early church, this would have been the priority of the story. How is it that this message, already in its earliest days, is seeing factional behavior taking place? There's already this division occurring. And why did they break up? Well, it was over this kid. This little kid, John, also called Mark, cousin of Barnabas, so maybe there's some nepotism going on here, I don't know. Uh, but whatever the case was, this kid and the argument over him was what broke him up. They were doing fine together, but it was this kid that had blown the whole thing. And so the point of the story, again, it's it's the, the point is Paul and Barnabas, not really Mark, but Mark is featured in the story because he was the one who split up the Beatles, right? He's the one who caused the this team, this dream team to be separated. Well, that's the immediate con that's the immediate part of the story. That that's the context right now for where the story's at. But again, also to reiterate the fact later on for Luke's audience, where this mark that they know in their time had come from. Not only had he abandoned Paul and Barnabas. I mean in the short term he let those two guys down. Right? That's that's one thing. But as we find out now, he's responsible for splitting up the first missionary team. I mean you it wasn't just that he did something to those guys immediately. He was the the catalyst for the first factional thing that took place in the very in the early church. And this The impact of this one decision that John made of leaving had ramifications right up the chain to the entirety of the church. So it's a big story, right? This is a huge screw up that had occurred, that had had been caused by John just simply going, you know what? I'm not ready for this. I'm going back to mum. Well, if you only read Acts, that's where the story ends for John also called Mark. That's the last time he's mentioned now he's only mentioned in this part of the story because of the impact that had happened from when he'd abandoned them. That's it. That's the end of the story as far as this guy is concerned. But again, we've got to, we got to ask the question, why was it put in there in the first place? Cause you, you could, you could have told the story. We well, couldn't, I guess you couldn't have really told the story of Barnabas and Saul splitting up without the story of John also called Mark, but there's these extra details that got added into the book of Acts that were not necessary, like, for example, Peter went back to the house of Mary, also uh, the mother of John, also called Mark. So there's these details that have been added in here, because clearly what Luke wants his audience to recognize is that this guy, Mark, who they knew in their time, has a backstory. and, And this is something of the story that took place. But then let's fast forward a bit now somewhere between somewhere after the year 60 this is when Paul is now in prison so it's been somewhere between the year 60 and 62. Um, Paul's writing letters from prison as we as we know there but what I want you to let's have a look at the final greetings the the final greetings in Paul's letters are absolutely fascinating because it's the, sometimes it's the, the only time we get to meet who some of his co-workers were, these incredibly important men and women in some cases, people that were helping Paul. We don't know anything else about them apart from these brief mentions of of them in his letters. So look at in Colossians 4, 10 to 11. It says, My, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Hang on a second. The last time we heard about Paul and mark paul wanted nothing to do with this kid right i mean he split up the dream team him and barnabas over this kid yet here we are some only what 10 or maybe 12 years later and now mark is a co-worker with paul here is paul in prison now paul's in in rome the last thing we knew, Mark was going back to Jerusalem to who knows what, going back to mum. Yet now here he is in Rome. When did he meet Paul in Rome? We don't know. We don't know. But that's a long way from home. Right? That's that's what's happened in this last 12 years, what we don't know. It, something has changed. And the safest bet would be that he grew up. Right? The teenager that completely screwed up when he left Paul and Barnabas, isn't the kid now who's maybe late 20s at the, at the most early 30s, he's just grown up. He's become a man. He's not the kid that he used to be. He's made a mistake as a teenager and now here he is in his early 30s having redeemed himself and quite clearly proven himself to the extent that Paul says, hey, you, you're going to be one of my coworkers. Not only are you forgiven for your your screw-up as a teenager, now think about it, even when Paul said to Barnabas, hey, I don't want this kid uh, on this trip again because of what he did last time, clearly Paul wasn't saying, I never want to see this kid again for the rest of my life. He's probably just thought, no, he's not old enough yet. Maybe he was too young. Maybe he wasn't ready. No, he just needs to grow up a little bit, you know, go through some experiences, and then we can use him again. Now, again, we don't know, but you can only speculate that at the very least, he grew up, he matured. He did what all humans do and stopped being a teenager, became an adult, took some responsibility and became a man. Well, that seems to clearly have been what's happened here. Now, If this was 2023, Mark would have been cancelled. They would have looked back on him and gone, okay, 10 years ago, you said this thing or you did this terrible thing, so therefore that's going to destroy your life from all times and all places. Thankfully, they didn't have social media back in the first century to go and dig up all of Mark's old tweets and say, hey, you screwed up back then. He had a second chance and he's grown up and he's learnt and here he is now in prison with Paul, helping Paul in prison. I mean, my goodness, you talk about the scariest place to be in the world right then. Emperor Nero, right, who's becoming increasingly psychopathic, is the emperor who's about to try Paul for the crimes of being a Christian, and Mark's there with him, helping him, going and getting food for him, going and looking after him, doing the work that Paul can't do in Rome. I mean, this is a remarkable turnaround but it's also the sort of turnaround you would expect when you make a mistake, you're given another opportunity, you grow up, and you become an adult. You, you learn from these mistakes. So he says you've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is also called Justice, also, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jews amongst my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort for me. Just remarkable. Now, that wasn't a coincidence because look what he says in Philippians. Philippians 1, 23 to 24. Uh, Epaphras, my fellow... Sorry, Philemon, sorry, 23 to 24. Uh, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends you his greetings. And so do Mark. There he is again with Paul in prison. Mark and Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Now, this is really interesting. Here is Mark again with Paul in prison, but he's also there with Luke because, as we know, this is Luke picks up in the story in uh, Philippi and stays with Paul. Luke is with him for the whole, almost the second half of Acts. So we know that Luke is an important part of Paul's ministry team as well. And so here's Luke hanging out with Mark. So he he would have heard the story. I mean, Mark would have probably with a bit of embarrassment, said, yeah, yeah, man, I, I really screwed up. Man, geez, did I make a mistake back then? But here we are, you know, God's good. Jesus has restored me. He's, he's forgiven me. And luckily Paul has as well. You know, we've, we've come good. And so Luke would have been very familiar with the story of Mark based on hanging out with the kid, you know, having learnt from the horse's mouth to be able to incorporate the story into uh, into his own account of what's going on. So that would certainly answer the question of why Luke considered it important to put Mark's story in because he'd been hanging out with Mark anyway. But there's something else that we talked about. That is Luke is writing to an audience who knows who Mark is. They, they, they know who this guy Mark is. And so this is giving something of the backstory of the, the Mark who's famous now but wasn't so famous back as a kid. So why does Luke incorporate that? Well, look what else happens in Rome. So we're talking about the year 62 to 64 now. So Mark is still in Rome. He's been with Paul. Paul has either been freed in the year 62 or he's been executed. We're not sure. But at any rate, um, Paul's no longer in the story, but Mark is still in Rome. Why is he in Rome? How do we know he's in Rome? Well, look at this. So this is 1 Peter. If you remember, Peter was also martyred. He was martyred by Nero in Rome. So both Peter and Paul are martyred in the city of Rome under Nero. So Peter himself is writing his own letters from prison. And so here he is writing this letter. Look what he says. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, now Babylon is the Jewish designation for Rome, all right? So when they talk about Babylon, they're talking about Rome, particularly when you get to the book of Revelation, when they're talking about Babylon, they're talking about Rome there. In Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Here he is again. So he's now been with Paul, he's been hanging out with Luke and the rest of the team, and now here he is with Peter. So did he come to Rome with Peter or did he come to Rome with Paul? Well, who knows? But he was there with both of them at the very least. Now, this is the most incredible point, and this is where the story has been getting to all this time. I've been saying all along that Mark is really famous. Why is Mark famous in Luke's day? Well, because Mark wrote this gospel that everybody would have been familiar with. He wrote the first story of Jesus. We call it the Gospel of Mark. Now, what's so significant about the Gospel of Mark is that it became the basis for Matthew and Luke's Gospel, right? So when Luke and Matthew were writing their own stories, they began with Mark. Now, why did they begin with Mark? When you think about it, Luke, his story was based on accounts from from Paul, directly from Paul, but especially Matthew – Matthew had been a disciple, or at the very least his students who'd written down the gospel had written down Matthew's account. Now, Matthew had been a disciple of Jesus himself. Matthew has a first-hand account of Jesus's life, and yet when he comes to write his own gospel, he bases it on Mark. Mark. Like, why Mark? Mark was maybe not even born when Jesus was around, and yet his gospel becomes the primary basis upon which Matthew writes his gospel. Why was it that he wrote it on Mark's gospel? Well, because Mark's gospel, Mark wasn't around for Jesus. So where did he get his gospel from? Well, he got it from Peter. Peter's story, Peter's encounter and, and, and life with Jesus is told to us through Mark. So Peter, the head of the church, his account of what, was, what happened during the life of Jesus he passes that on to Mark. That's, so his student now is hearing all of these stories from Peter. And these gospel traditions, these oral traditions that have been passed on to Mark are the ones that Peter's expecting Mark to go out and teach to the church. He's the next generation of Christian leaders. So here's what you need to be teaching. But Mark takes it one step further and says, actually, I need to write this stuff down. Right? Peter's dead now. Uh, Paul's dead. Uh, The other church leaders are getting old or they're already dead. Well, Jesus isn't back. Someone is going to have to write this thing down because if we don't, we're going to lose it to memory. So Mark says, all right, I'm going to write down this story. I'm going to write down Peter's story. And so Mark's gospel is Peter's gospel. And Mark writes down perhaps the most famous book ever, ever written, the one that literally changed the world and the one on which Luke and Matthew later on based their own Gospels. This is from the kid who, at one point, nearly walked away from all of it, nearly just abandoned the whole thing. Some 18-year-old kid says, you know what, this is too much, I'm going back to mum. Somehow or other, whatever this, whatever happened during the story came good, redeemed himself, was picked up and redeemed by... The heads of the church and given a second chance. And so, as a result of that, finds himself as perhaps one of the most famous Christian authors that's ever walked the face of the earth. I absolutely love this story. I just absolutely love this story, particularly having been a youth pastor for the the years that I was a youth pastor and just being a young guy myself and all the mistakes that I made as as a dumb teenager. And yet. I look back and just go, man. If they'd been given up on, them. man. If I just had given up after those mistakes, where would my life have become? Or those, all those teenagers that I was looking after in youth that made mistake after mistake after mistake, and yet I look at their lives now and just think, my goodness, they're just these incredible men and women of God. What would have happened if we just given up on them? Anyway, I could rant on all day about all of this but i think you get the point it's a really really incredible story of redemption the story of mark well anyway i hope that's been helpful i hope that's been encouraging to you thanks so much for joining me and uh, next week we're going to start a new series about the role of women in the new testament which i'm really really excited about so join me for that otherwise have a great week and i'll see you next week